Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Edgar Villanueva, a globally recognized expert on social justice philanthropy. Edgar currently serves as the chair of the Board of Directors of Native Americans in Philanthropy and is a board member of the Andrus Family Fund, a national foundation that works to improve outcomes for vulnerable youth. We speak with Edgar today about his work and his ideas in his book, Decolonizing Wealth, which offers a vision of philanthropy and wealth creation and accumulation through the lens of social justice and racial equity. Welcome, Edgar. Thank you for having me on. Your book is one of many books that I've read in the area of decolonizing wealth. And the topic in the title is very apropos. I've also read Winner Takes All and The Purpose of Capital. And I think this is a conversation that is often missing from what I'm doing in the gender justice space, is examining capitalism and our infrastructure, our structural impediments. And so you start off your book with a quote from Native American elders that says, you don't choose the medicine, the medicine chooses you. And that was in reference to the concept of money being potentially a source of healing and medicine. Can you talk about what you mean by that? So I was at a point in my life where I had experienced um, a lot of pain and struggle as a Native American person working in the sector of philanthropy, which is this very privileged space, right? Um, There's a lot of power and concentrated privilege in the sector of philanthropy. And as a person who did not come from that background, trying to navigate those hallways and move resources of money to low-income communities, to communities of color, I ran into a lot of situations that were painful. And I had considered actually leaving the sector and doing something completely different that felt more authentic. And uh, that particular quote came from a conversation I was having with an elder who was encouraging me to kind of stick with it and to see that um, although money and you know how money has been used historically has been painful, it has um, imposed trauma upon communities, I could be a part of helping people to reimagine how to redirect resources in a way that actually helps to heal um, the trauma that's been caused. And so for me, that was a great awakening that I have a calling, I have a gift, and that is, that is to um, help liberate money, <laughs> to, to move money into communities of color and to use money as a, um, a resource or a tool to help facilitate healing in our communities. When you say it can be used as a resource or tool, when I first read that, my thoughts turned to the pharmaceutical industry and how our whole healthcare industry is geared not towards prevention. Actually, all of our systems interact together to create illness and then create uh, mechanisms for addressing that illness, not even for healing the original symptoms, right? Or just healing the symptoms, but not the root causes. And so my question is, can money really be a tool, effective tool in this space if the whole conception of what its purpose is in the context of patriarchy and colonialism and the 
remnants of settler colonialism still persist, and we're not interrogating those other systems in the way they interact to contribute to wealth creation and value creation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, all of these issues are so entangled. And so money and using money differently is is absolutely not a a be all and end all um, solution towards liberation. Um, But I think that we often, you know, for for money, money for me is a symbol, a proxy for a lot of things. Uh, One, it's a proxy for relationships. And we've made money, uh, you know, a very thing about exchange in a lot of ways. And it does Money in itself, when hoarded, when used to oppress, um, is evil, but it's really not about the money. It's people. (laughs) It's people that are using money and have used money in a way to cause harm and have been extractive um, from people and from the planet. And so um, for me, understanding how money can be deployed in a way that is um, about healing, you have to establish or think about money as something that is actually neutral. And I I think of the Audre Lorde quote, um, you know, that I I heard a lot early in my career in philanthropy that, you know, the the master's tools will not, uh, what is the quote, the the tools of the master's house will not like dismantle the house. I think I misquoted that, but something along those lines. Um, And for a while, I felt I was holding this conflict like, oh, my God, I'm a part of the master's tools. And philanthropy in itself is this inherently connected to capitalism. It just is like these foundations exist because of capitalism and, you know, folks who started businesses and grew tremendous amounts of wealth in, in order to create these foundations. But I um, also saw the other side of that over the past 15 years, that money and wealth and resources have had a role in funding civil rights and, you know, sometimes anonymously, like providing resources for the work of liberation. And so it's like money is a necessary evil in a sense that we all need to support our own lives, also to support work. And so I thought about that quote and I'm like, well, maybe money isn't the actual tool. I think it's actually, it, it is actually the force of colonization or the force of domination. It's people, it's evilness that um, it's, it's the actual method that people have conducted themselves around how they've used money. And so again, it's like I got to a place where I'm like, well, money is a neutral thing. And it's actually how we as people have used money that's caused a harm. So if we can change our behaviors, our mindsets around how we use money, how we resource our communities, how we you know shift our economy to be more um, one of reciprocity and well-being versus one that is that's uh, filled with exploitation. Let me just hopefully paraphrase accurately <laughs> what you just said. You believe that the philosophy of using money in a different way by shifting mindset and behavior can be one way of leading to liberation. Yeah. Okay. And can you, what's liberation for you? What, what's, what does that mean? Liberation for me is thinking about living in a world that I can be completely myself and um, there's no harm directed toward me or toward the planet. And so it's, uh, it's not one that currently we've, you know, in our, especially in our economic system that's based on extraction and harm. And so, um, you know, this also reminds me of the indigenous worldview of all my relations. And so 
If we want to apply an economic lens to that right now, our economic system in the U.S., capitalism, cannot be further from the idea of all my relations, right? It is about amassing wealth regardless of harm to people or the planet. And so this uh, getting to a place of thinking about money and wealth as a tool for healing requires a complete shift of heart and mind to think about what are the decisions I'm making around business or around even how I use my own money? You don't have to be a millionaire to be a philanthropist. We all make financial decisions every day. And so it's using my money or my resources in a way that um, is not extractive. And knowing that the decisions I make throughout the day around my money, but also just every decision impacts other people and impacts the planet. And so if you have that lens that we are inherently connected to each other, we are inherently connected to the planet, that lens over all of our decision-making is going to shift how we make decisions. And hopefully uh, decisions will be made about resources and we'll shift this economy to one that's a little bit less harmful to our communities. You currently work and have worked in philanthropy. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about, as some of your peers in the space have said, about the concept of philanthropy? We wouldn't need philanthropy if we were truly liberated in how we accumulate money and value because everybody would have enough. Absolutely. I totally agree with my peers. Like I uh, imagine a day where philanthropy no longer exists. The philanthropy, you know, industrial complex. Philanthropy in itself, like the love of, of humankind and taking care of one another and sharing has always existed. And that's a good thing. We have capitalized, you know, made this, we've created this industry of such. Um, and the truth is, you know, philanthropy in the U.S. absolutely was created as a tax shelter and as a PR campaign. And those, uh, those parts of, uh, you know, our origin still are very inherent in, in this industry. Um, I do think all that being said, so, so my approach to this is absolutely a um, intermediary step towards like, well, $900 billion of capital exists until we change the tax law where foundations are, the number of foundations being started are limited. We increase taxation on the wealthy. I do see the $900 billion being wealth that belongs to our communities, that it was sort of stolen in a sense. But in the meantime, how that money, that's a lot of money that could be used to repair. We're never going to undo the extraction that went into making that money and the history of colonization and slavery. But if we are respectful to that history and aware of that history that has led to the accumulation of so much wealth and this philanthropic industry and $900 billion, we might use that money differently in a way that could push us toward healing. So for example, right now, When we look at all of the philanthropic capital and how it's being used, um, only a small percentage, like seven and a half to eight percent of grants go to communities of color. Right. So when you think about the trauma that exists in our communities because of a history of exploitation and now we're not benefiting from that wealth at all, I mean, in very small quantities. What about the idea of taking that wealth and using it and giving it to these communities that have been harmed in the process? Um, So that's the case I'm trying to make for the philanthropic sector is to think about where you have all of this money, the way that you're currently using it is unjust. 
it's actively harming communities the way it's being invested. Like most of philanthropic capital is actually tied up in Wall Street, actively harming people in the planet. And so I'm trying to bring an awareness about this harm that is happening in real time to shift practices um, in, you know, right now around how this money is used while we're looking at the long game. What do we need to change about our system? What do we need to change about how we show up in relationship with each other so that uh, we're not we're not seeing, you know, mass quantities of wealth being generated um, in ways that are um, continued to exploit people. And so um, it's a both and for me. Um, I want that Wakanda world. (laughs) But in the process of getting there, um, there's a lot of money on the table that I feel like belongs to our communities. How has your book and your ideas impacted the community, the philanthropic community and corporate America so far? Have they responded directly (laughs) to you? Yes, in a very overwhelming way. Honestly, I um, the book came out in October 2018. And I had, I guess at the time was sort of a thought leader in philanthropy, but had no idea that this book would have the reach and impact that it's had. So I'm still amazed every day. Within the philanthropic sector, uh, one, I think everyone's read it and there's book clubs and all types of things happening. I've spoken at pretty much most philanthropic conferences, at least the large national ones. And I have so many reports of changes that people are making. Um, Large foundations are using this book as a blueprint for their strategic planning to reassess their practices, thinking about who's on their board, what does their staffing look like, what does their grant-making strategy need to look like or shift and make sure they're being inclusive, and, you know, what is the impact of their funding? Are they really getting at those root issues, right, versus putting Band-Aids on on different things? So, um, yeah, there's even, I've had reports from foundations that have taken um, recommendations quite literally from the book around taking 10% of their endowments and handing them over to communities of color. They're actually doing it now or they're planning on doing it? Um, They are uh, actually doing it now. (laughs) Another large foundation on the West Coast told me that they read the book and it started a conversation about spending down the foundation. I think this was like a $500 million foundation. Um, They're going to liquidate their assets and just turn them over to the community. And so I know for a fact there's been, uh, you know, major, major impacts within the sector And um, I have a a folder on my computer where I just keep emails and stories. And then I think the bigger surprise for me is the impact outside of philanthropy, right? So um, in the corporate sector, and I have been invited into um, banks and um, all types of uh, corporate institutions um, who are thinking about how, you know, corporate America can can show up in a different way. Um, I'm keynoting in a couple of weeks, the National CSR Conference. And I think right now, even, uh, you know, these corporate partners are thinking through how they show up and how they might be harming community. And, you know, I don't know that we'll ever get away from corporate greed. It's so like, you know, all of this stuff is so baked in. It's going to take radical shifts in like imagination to even start processes. But I do feel hopeful. And I have to say from some of the internal um, conversations and presentations and engagement that I have had inside of corporations, my bias toward some of these industries has shifted a little bit or I've, or, you know, I've seen that I have bias, right? Where I think, oh, I'm the social justice good guy over here and they're kind of evil. 
I've learned that in every sector, there are disruptors and there are good people inside of these institutions and systems who are trying to make change. And also when, within the entertainment industry, there's been a lot of conversation around the book. And, you know, folks are realizing the power they, that they do hold, whether you're working at a corporation or if you're working inside the entertainment industry and you have the power to influence narrative and culture change, um, or you're working at a nonprofit or um, a foundation, like we all hold a certain amount of power and influence to make a difference, to change things, to examine how we might be most of the time unintentionally harming communities or perpetuating these systems. It takes a, a real sincere commitment to hold up that mirror and like examine yourself and to know how you are either helping or hurting others. And that's been um, the amazing surprise about this book. And even folks who just at the individual level, like I get notes all the time from people who are saying that this book really helped them to connect with their family, right? To open up painful conversations or to look at their family's history and kind of begin coming to terms with some stuff that's there. We all have stuff. This country has stuff that we have sweeped under the carpet that's continuing to eat away at us and, and, and sort of re-traumatize us in ways. So this is all about um, storytelling and having an era of truth that will lead to reconciliation is, is my hope. You mentioned earlier lots of ideas around like top-down policy changes, tax law reform, totally agree. And, and even with the foundations considering spending down their endowment. So that to me, appears more like looking back and and how can we, it's more like along the lines of reparations, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But what can we do given that there's so many gaps in our foundation, in our democratic institutions, in our capitalistic machine, basically, that is not setting us up for equality and all of these values that you had mentioned earlier around advancing agency and mutuality, um, and certainly the concept of caring about our environment. We don't have a sustainable planet, then, <laughs> right? We don't have. We're not. If we don't have a sus- sustainability in our in our business practices, we're not going to have a planet left. So, what are your thoughts around structural reforms? within our economic models. Have you made any concrete ideas and suggestions to corporations around being more supportive of unions? Those kinds of other things where individuals have a voice. Yeah, you know, it's complicated. You know, it, it raises the question, like, can can capitalism be, be a good thing, right? Um, is there anything good about capitalism? And um, I'm not an economist, but... You know, um, I think that's in this country in particular, it's very challenging because our economic system was created and built on extraction. And so it's hard for me to imagine a capitalism that that changes. Right. And I, I say in the book, a quote from Malcolm X, who said that you can't have capitalism without racism. And I totally believe that. And so I think it's hard to imagine a a future or or system that is in place economically that is different because we've never had it, (laughs) for one. But, you know, it is for me, I go back to sort of indigenous worldview around 
Um, you know, one, we talked about all my relations and, and really getting to a relational place versus a transactional place with people in the community. And it, um, that is a fundamental, like radical transformation that is one of the heart. Right. And so a lot of the times I'm talking to foundations or corporations about business practices and there are policies and like immediate things that people can do in those places to make some impacts. Right. But to really get to a sustainable place, we have to, it's a very personal work, right? It, this is work that has to happen in our individual lives and with our families, because you can go to a foundation and make some good grants, right? To support people of color and, you know, women of color leaders or whatever, uh, but then go back home and like not have conversations with your children or your family. Um, and ultimately it's got to get back to that fundamental place of like what we talk about around the dinner table, how we're building community. And, um, oftentimes I only have like 30 minutes or, you know, of talking with a corporation or with a founder, whoever, and, um, I can only whet an appetite or a curiosity in those places for people to want to do deep transformative work. And so I encourage everybody to understand this is there are solid like practices and things that we can do in our organizations to be more equitable, but it really is about personal transformation. And I think that it's really hard to, if, if we're doing the work in our personal lives, then it, it begins to just show up in the workplace, right? You're going to begin to question and see, maybe that's not fair. Maybe I have this portfolio of business or this uh, grant making portfolio and there's not one single person of color in there, you know, like you begin to just see. And so we have to decolonize our, our hearts and our minds in a very personal way that will begin to impact. Now, I do think you can make changes at work. And because um, I often also say to foundations, especially, I don't have time for you to have that personal transformation and then begin to fund things in the right way. <laughs> like the world is on fire. So you can begin to practice through your grant making or through your nonprofit work or your business, a more equitable approach to your work that is going to inform your personal and shape your personal life. So it's both and, right? It's not a linear process. And so that's, that is the key, I think, beyond policies, beyond practices, like how do we shift our hearts? And for me personally, I have been radically transformed in the way I see the world and um, on my own healing journey, you know, from the way I was raised to see the world, um, some good, some bad, and the way I was socialized and the, the forced assimilation um, in my personal life and family life, but also in my work life. It's been unpeeling all of that through the years, little by little, to see the world in a very different way. And so I'm automatically going to show up at work and, um, and begin to practice my business in a different way. Um, it's going to change how my hiring practices. It's going to change who I want to be in partnership with and privilege in the work that I do. So, so it's sort of it's it's a both and. And I think it's it's so easy to um, in, in this day and age where we're so tied to like identity politics and whatnot to let the heart piece get away. And so um, that's that's really where I'm sitting right now is thinking about personal transformation and infusing ourselves with like deep radical love for people. And that is like spiritual work, 
you know, and it's not something that you're going to get at a, a, a training provided by your HR department, probably in that organization. <laughs> um, although I have had some spiritual moments, um, for sure with people. And that's when you see the breakthrough happening. And it's so easy, um, to like, you know, I go from making the case of why you need to change this to like, oh, it becomes so obvious that we need to, you know, change these practices and organizations. So this is a work in progress, right? Our, <laughs> right. our um, ideas about how to make things better and more equitable. Um, but I also feel like from talking to guests that I've had on the show, uh, learning more about indigenous culture, you, you talked about all my relations. You know, I, re- I learned your, only two years ago, I, I was so embarrassed to say about the concept of seventh generation, even though mm-hmm. the brand had existed for a long time, right? And so I feel like there are a lot of these concepts that we have access to in addition to feminist ideas and concepts, right? So one of my guests recently is a feminist consultant named C.V. Harquill. And she wrote a book called Feminism, A Key Idea in Business and Society, which Mm. I highly recommend. Most important book of 2019, I think. And in that book, she posits a framework for looking at capitalism in a way where, yes, both and. You can still have, instead of extraction, you can have mutuality, you can use feminist ideology, which is already being used but not named in a lot of impact, social justice work, those values and practices, they're, if they're being constructive, then it points to a lot of what you've discussed around transformation. We can actually have, in her terms, flourishing for all. It's just that right now, the system in place because of regulations or deregulations and whatever policies that we create, we're preventing those benefits from being shared. So I guess my question is, what are your thoughts on some of those policy changes that we might want to consider? And one of them is around capping wealth. Like, is the concept of a billionaire unethical? Yeah, good. Well, and I'm glad that you're lifting policy because so many efforts exist to address poverty or eradicate poverty. And the way I think about poverty or my definition of poverty is that um, you know, poverty is a product of public policy and theft that has been facilitated by white supremacy. So in order to begin to address poverty, those three things must be considered. It is a policy issue. There have been intentional policies throughout time that have intentionally marginalized and oppressed people of color to keep folks in poverty. And then when I say theft, that's taken into the the historical account of um, slavery, genocide, stolen land, all of these um, actions of oppression that have privileged and added to the wealth of white folks. Um, And then facilitated by white supremacy, this is the force that has been at play for for years and years and years, right, that is really um, a narrative, a very uh, strategic narrative change strategy, right? Um, and so for me around race and gender, these, um, you know, race is a concept that was created, perhaps gender was, who knows, right? So these are all constructs that um, have been used to manipulate and put people in into boxes of sort of forced assimilation and roles and then policies around all of that. 
So to zoom out around potential policy changes, so absolutely, like, I think we have to look at tax. I mean, taxation is like the biggest one for me because philanthropy is so connected to that. So looking at increased taxation of the wealthy, looking at, um, of course, taxing corporations, like it boggles my mind that Amazon doesn't pay taxes. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? And so um, the, the fact that poor people pay such an unfair share of taxes and these wealthy elite um, corporations and people are, um, you know, there's a loophole to get them out of that is just ridiculous. And so it is um, poor people of color and a lot of women um, that are kind of holding our society together, like on, you know, on the backs of these folks. So those are absolutely things that need to be considered. Um, you know, there's a, a call for a moratorium on uh, a billionaires and those types of things. I don't know how that works, right? I support the idea. I don't know how you make that possible. For me to say, you know, it's an interesting question. Do I think that like millionaires should exist or billionaires? It's it's a the idea of being a millionaire or a billionaire from my cultural perspective is like it's very much in conflict. Um, we do not do well unless all of us are doing well. Now, I will say that, you know, many of us, we came from poverty, like my generation of friends that are Native, um, that, you know, sort of escaped the cycle of poverty in some way, went to college, we're doing pretty well for ourselves. I like nice things, right? Like, um, I, you know, I am, so, you know, uh, like I am, uh, get called up sometimes and, and, and wanting to align and, you know, the whole Kardashian effect or whatever you want to call that. Right. But at the same time, like what I see happening with myself and with my, my colleagues, I don't like all of us that are native, there's just like built in inherent cultural thing that we've made it to this point, but this, we have to take care of our family. Right. And so I, you know, I'm working hard to build a certain amount of wealth because I'm taking care of my mother and I'm taking care of my brother and my nieces and nephew and and so it is like wealth of community and that drives me versus this very personal thing right and so um so yeah so it's I, i'm not against wealth per se i just want us all to have it yeah, i want to have ac- equal access equal access and you know i want to wear nice clothes and to eat in nice restaurants but i think that everyone should have that opportunity and the way that uh the american dream is not real and the way that we are current we currently exist in this country with these policies and and with racism that is just not a, a realistic opportunity um for for everyone so yeah so i think um taxation is the way and then when we look at philanthropy um, i do think that we should have a moratorium on foundations being created right now wealth managers are advising uh, wealthy folks to start foundations and they're popping up like like flies because it is a tax shelter it is a way to become more wealthy no wealthy person starts a foundation and becomes poor as generous as these folks seem and when you see the headlines like oh they're supporting they they gave to this cause or that cause um that inherently made them richer by doing so and so yeah i do believe a lot of these folks are generous and and well-intentioned but do not be deceived that it is also very uh you know self-serving to do these things so i think until we figure out 
how to govern foundations to use that revenue in a different way um, or those assets in a different way, we need to um, actually put a moratorium on foundations. Also, I think we need to raise the payout requirements for foundations. So folks may not know that when a private foundation is started, the government only requires that 5% of the money actually leave the foundation to go to community. And so the majority of these um, philanthropic funds that have not been taxed Right, tax sheltered funds um, are not going, are not benefiting the community. In fact, are harming community. So I think there's all types of policy opportunities to mandate the more money benefit the community, um, and that uh, the way foundations invest are um, to be aligned with the mission and not to be, um, you know. Um, there's just absolutely no accountability or restrictions on that. The final thing I'll say, because I could go on and on about policy ideas for foundations, is I think there's an opportunity to um, restructure governance of foundations in a way that is more democratic. Right now, there's absolutely no regulations um, around uh, our guidelines or rules around who can be on the board or should be on the board of a foundation. So again, a wealthy family gets a huge tax break, starts a foundation, and the board of the foundation is all family, and they have they can fund their friends. And there's no um, community accountability for that. I say that there should be a policy that requires that at least 50% of foundation boards be reflective of the community or the community that they're trying to serve, which is not outlandish. Um, many organizations in the United States that benefit from tax breaks or from federal funding have those types of regulations on um, what their governance structure should look like. So we need, as an industry, and I'm in this industry, we need to be held accountable. We've tried to self-regulate and do the right thing because we're nice people, and it just is not happening fast enough. And so I'm all about thinking through those opportunities. Oh, and one last thing I have to say, sometimes I forget this. Um, The new way to sort of build wealth and to create foundations is to start donor advice funds. And so uh, DAFs or donor advice funds are growing um, at an insane rate. Fidelity Charitable is now, now holds the largest amount of charitable assets in the world. They're bigger than the Ford Foundation, MacArthur, every... And so uh, with donor advised funds, if you start a fund, you get a major tax break and there are zero requirements about paying out um, any grants to the community. So again, a massive amount of money is just sitting in the bank and being invested in Wall Street and folks are getting major tax write-offs. So I think that everyone listening to this podcast should know and understand that those resources actually belong to us. We didn't earn them necessarily through our work, but that's money that would have gone and should have gone into our tax system to pay for public schools for our kids, to pay for elder care and those types of things. So we need to be thinking about how we can organize to apply pressure and to support legislation to hold these institutions and these financial products accountable. Speaking of legislation, this is one that's been resisted and now actively being opposed by the GOP, which is the Equal Rights Amendment. Personally, I think it's the most important piece of legislation that we could pass because it gives tools for people to encourage equitable outcomes in you know various spaces and then an enforcement tool if they're not adhering to it. And so what are your thoughts about that? You spoke about poverty and most people, I mean, just looking at the numbers, most people who are in poverty are women, lots of single moms. 
and poverty is inextricably connected to domestic violence, right? So a lot of people who are in shelters, you know, who are on getting, receiving public benefits, they're all victims of abuse. And so it goes back to this interconnectedness of racism and sexism and systemic sexism. And so what are your thoughts around the ERA? No, I definitely support it. I mean, I think that it's... um you know, it's, it's time is up, <laughs> you know, it's like for so long things have been unequitable and uh, women have been marginalized and oppressed and people of color and especially women of color. Right. And so when you overlay those, the intersectional uh, identities, um, yeah, there, I think that institutions need to be held accountable for um, being inclusive for serving and, and, and not, um, I want to go further, like not just being inclusive and and definitely and not just equality, but being equitable. And equity is a little bit different than just being like fair or inclusive or equal. Equity actually means that those who have been harmed the most actually are privileged to get more, right? And so, women of color need to be invested in. Um, like with a multiplier effect to like catch up <laughs> with with others, right? And so um, I'm all for any type of policy and especially accountability and enforcement that will push organizations to do that. Um, and 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 it's and you know another maybe a step beyond uh, just holding organizations to do it. How do we like create? Um, infrastructure or a place where we're just handing over power and we're handing over resources to those women of color to do it on their own right and so not having to sit on the sidelines and wait for the system or wait for organizations to bring resources or to provide grants right and i talk about this a little bit in the book that we just need to hand over these resources and trust the leadership of these folks who have been uh, directly impacted um, I know from an indigenous perspective and with indigenous women that I work with who are uh, leading all types of um, efforts around the country um, to support folks who have um, experienced trauma and violence. Um, this, there's a movement now for, you know, really trying to bring attention to missing, missing and murdered indigenous women. Um, I completely trust the leadership of these women. And um, the fact that anyone has to like prove that they're worthy and to make the case to foundations and to the government for support and help really frustrates me. Um, I just want resources to be turned over to folks who are leading this work, who are so capable and know best actually, right? And so that's where, you know, kind of getting to a lot of the conversation you, you do on this podcast, it's, um, you know, of course, a remnant of, of capitalist thinking, but it and racist thinking, but also just like male dominant thinking, right? Patriarchy that is so baked into, you know, everything that we do, which we see the outputs, right? We see that women of color are the most marginalized and cut off from uh, resources. So, so yeah, so in essence, I support, I support that. And I love right now how women and women of color are organizing in this country to build power and to, um, and that those issues are being elevated and those demands are being made. And I think that um, we all need to think about how we can be in solidarity with that work and support it. Well, in the startup space, I mean, I guess in many spaces, even in, in corporate America, there is more rhetoric, I'll say, around 
the um, external support of external representation, right? So more um, access to women. Lots of people in venture capital have talked about, you know, how few women are being funded, and so there are, there's almost like a spate of women funders now and funds, right? And my whole thing is, and then of course there's, you know, the moniker of the future is female. And so I've, I've actually always been against that because working in the gender justice space, um, and you, you reference this in your book as well, right? Especially when you talked about Audre Lorde, like people who are basically colonized, if you have a colonized mentality, that doesn't necessarily make you an ally for equality. And so how do we filter out those people or how do we empower them with the right, we're building the right mindset? so that they can be an ally, right? And you quote Albert Memmi here in your book about how it's not easy to escape a mentality from a concrete situation and to refuse its ideology when you're living under it and benefiting from its relationships, right? So that's kind of my dilemma as someone who's working in the gender justice space. Like, how do we build trust when not everybody who's in this space who purports to be an advocate is actually doing real advocacy. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, we we saw that in the last election, right? Like, who voted for Donald Trump? <laughs> so, and continue to ban- and continue to support him. Absolutely. And and so, yeah, you know what some people call white feminism is is a thing, and we we all internalize oppression and trauma and carry that out sometimes or oftentimes on on others if we're not doing the work. And I think for me, I can't speak from a woman's perspective. I mean, I've done definitely uh, a lot of work to support feminist movements and even some recent work around the the tech startup place, right? And the narratives that are out there around women of color that are just ridiculous about not having capacity. Are we set thresholds so high? Like, oh, they have to have this much capital before we will invest in them. And I'm like... There's a reason why they don't have a lot of capital, <laughs> right? And um, so, for me, it is really understanding. Um, I, I work a lot with white people, white people with privilege and wealth, and what I try to do in those spaces is help them understand that this problem of the colonized mindset, um, this, the oppression that has happened historically. Uh, white supremacy is actually um, a problem that is also harming them. And what happens, I think, with, you know, white women sometimes is that they want to cling to the one thing that they think will give them power, and that's the whiteness, right? And maybe they don't feel like they have power as a woman, but they have power in their whiteness, and so they gravitate toward that. Um, you know, to the despair of uh, the sisterhood. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's really white people need to um, do the work to understand that, you know, I often say I'm not looking for an ally. Um, when you mentioned that word, I think allyship to me implies that I have a problem or a struggle over here and I need you to come and have my back. Um, that, that's not what I need. I need for white folks to be co-conspirators with me to understand that there's a problem that's been created. They actually created the problem, right? And, um, but this is our problem. Like white supremacy is harming my community, but it's also harming them. And it's not, uh, you know, because we're connected, we're inherently connected. And the, the dominance of white supremacy and that mindset is causing so much trauma and disconnection and sadness. Um, in white communities. And I think 
I think this is why, why we're seeing a resurgence of white nationalism in, in ways that I never imagined that I would see in my lifetime is because there is so much um, unhappiness and in this experiment of being American and uh, forsaking your culture and like assimilating to this idea of the American dream, it's causing disappointment and folks are realizing that, yes, I love America and it's, it's great to be a part of this country, but I'm also other things. I have an, another culture that existed before this idea. Um, and to let that go and to assimilate to this idea is, is leaving people dissatisfied. Um, and I think it's the, the trauma of it all has just never been addressed. And so it's that pain and that trauma that's sparking up in people and causing them to cling to whiteness because they think that's the thing that's going to save them when in fact it's the very thing that's going to destroy their own communities. And so it's a real conversation that all of us who are in this work for liberation um, whether we're people of color, women, women of color, we have to see the solidarity in our struggles. And for us to turn on each other is exactly what the oppressor wants, right? That lateral oppression that we, we experience that is so painful um, is, is just, I think it's one of the reasons that we're not, we can't win sometimes. And, and so, um, you know, we, we have to understand that we have a common enemy and, and that is... Um, the white patriarchy that is putting out these narratives and mindsets and intentionally creating these craps in the bucket kind of kind of situations but it's a real thing and a lot of my sisters of color in this work right now with 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 me too that is a huge thing which is fantastic and a lot of attention being paid to gender issues lots of new funds being created all over the place so probably now more than ever there's like resources and funding to, to support gender equality um, but it's missing a race analysis, right? Um, it's missing the the understanding that women of color are disproportionately impacted by everything. And by having race neutral approaches, we're, we're potentially designing strategies and creating resources that don't benefit everyone. But if we actually focus at the margins on women of color, we're going to create strategies and resources that impact and support all women. And so um, I know for from talking with some of my sisters of color that have been in the trenches doing this work, moving resources, um, to, to movement, um, they're feeling a certain way right now because a lot of that work is being co-opted by white women. And so there's a place for white women in this work. I'm not saying like you should retreat and, and leave, <laughs> but um, understand that there are women of color who have been here, who have been thinking about this, who have been doing this work. And the best thing that you can do is um, find an, um, uh, someone to be a co-conspirator and to support the leadership of women of color and to learn from them and not uh, come in all of a sudden and show up with resources and privilege um, to co-op and overshadow that work. That's really um, causing a lot of pain and tension, uh, like uh, tension, uh, I think, in the feminist movement. There's a way that we can come together and all work together and, and uh, get through this. Um, but we've got to be aware if you have privilege, you have to be aware of the space you're taking up and, and whose, whose shoulders that you might be standing on that you need to acknowledge. I have to, I don't know if I, I would use the word disagree, but I would just add that I think that gender is actually often left out of the race conversation. And, yeah. and it's not the reverse that you had posited. I mean, there's so much right now going on in terms of the 
diversity and inclusion conversation around race, right? And it's kind of this afterthought for corporations. And yet, going back to the ERA, corporations know that if it were to be passed, all these federal laws would have to be retroactively changed to make sure that we're addressing the gender wage gap and all of these other issues that would play out in corporations all across the country. And they're resisting that. There's still confusion around, obviously, conversations and Me Too in the workplace. And it's a very defensive approach. It's not about constructing a place of safety and equality and opportunity in the workplace, at least on the gender side. And so your book deals a lot with this concept of empathy and healing, obviously. And one of your ideas in the Overseer's chapter, you talk about this dynamic, this drama triangle between the perpetrator, the victim, and the savior, and how the way out of that triangle is for each of those individuals and players to cultivate their worth internally. And that's what you spoke about earlier in the conversation around doing the work individually to transform yourself. But if you're in a position of privilege, if you're a white heterosexual male, and you continue to benefit from all of these policies, and you know, as Ibram Kendi believes, right, people are not going to voluntarily, throughout looking at history, voluntarily give up privilege. Oh, so no, it has gotta, to be forced upon it. them yeah. through policy. We have to take it. <laughs> yeah. So what can we do to make those really dramatic changes in our laws and policies because we don't even have that much support for the ERA, right? Amongst women. Like how do we decolonize our minds so that we can do that work if we're not suffering, if we are benefiting from privilege every day and and want to uphold it? Right, right. Well, I want to say before I respond to that, just one one comment about race, because I I often lead with race and that's kind of when I'm when I'm talking about disparities and oppression and I use race because very explicitly, but not exclusively, because when you're looking at um, marginalized groups, whether it's women, LGBT, folks with disabilities or whatnot, and then you apply the the lens of race across that right in an intersectional way, you're going to find um, the common denominator is like folks are going to be in the worst conditions, right? And so my approach of using race is to get across um, all of those marginalized groups. Um, But absolutely, I agree with you that we need to be explicit about women of color because gender is often left off off the table. But to your your point about what what do we do to sort of force, um, because we're not getting there fast enough, right? I see a a twofold, twofold approach, right? One, is, you know, hope, and, and this, this may be my Pollyanna side, is like, what are the um, people, it's all about self-interest, so it's going to take white people, hopefully organizing other white people. I, I was at a corporation recently, and I saw this really beautiful exercise of um, white men, that this company sends white men to a training on race and gender, which was like amazing. And then they practiced, they did this exercise where they, in front of like 6,000 employees, um, the white men sat in a circle to have a conversation and to like hold each other accountable about their their male privilege, their white privilege. And they were surrounded on the stage by women and a lot of women of color um, who were just kind of sitting there to hold them accountable. And I thought this is um, so needed that white men 
this is their shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> like they need to be organizing each other to, um, to, to change. And I think it's, it's just a powerful approach. But again, um, that's, it's a slow approach because as you said, they're currently benefiting from the system. So what are the opportunities to, to take power? For me, um, you know, we talked about some of the policies. I think we need to be very thoughtful about how can we build power in communities of color and with women and women of color, right? So um, where we are actually taking power. What are the strategies to elevate women um, into political positions, into other types of places of, of power to actually just begin to like take over, <laughs> right? Um, there's a new strategy that you may have heard of that um, the Pivotal, which is Melinda Gates's um, um, LLC, her philanthropic organization, has committed a billion dollars to gender equality. And, um, you know, they looked at what are the positions of power for women, like what are the industries and the places. So from politics to the media to tech and whatnot, and are investing resources and strategies to get women in those places. So, you know, I think that's that's one approach. I don't know what the policies, what the right policies might be to sort of like force these men out of power. <laughs> so I've got to, you know, there's probably some good ones out there, but what I'm most familiar with is helping and supporting strategies where white people are organizing themselves around their issues of masculinity and whiteness, and also just supporting women of color especially um, in all women to to get uh, into positions of power. So I think it's an awakening, um, but it's also a takening. <laughs> That's not a word, but I was trying to make it rhyme. Um, taking of that power because you're, you're exactly right. Folks are not going to cede power. And so I think regulations on, you know, around hiring practices, around resourcing, around outcomes, all of those are things that we need to look at. But it's, you're, you're, it's really interesting. I have talked to groups of women, and when I begin to talk about women of color, there's, a, there, there's something that seems to creep up sometimes, like all of a sudden I'm not talking about women anymore, that I'm taking something from them, and which is a, a very bizarre phenomenon. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's, which is probably why I go back to my default about pushing like the race conversation, because it is, we've got to center race in all of our work around gender and in other places. So, but yeah, I don't know. I'm very curious to, to learn and to hear more around Around what types of policies um, folks might be thinking about or practices that kind of continue to push corporations and organizations to, to cede that power. The whole Melinda Gates idea of increasing representation, which we know is definitely necessary uh, as one of the first steps, um, makes me think about Finland and how like recently um, all the um, top five elected officials are women. Um, but then when you looked at the statistics around domestic violence, I read that they still have, strangely, you know, pretty high rates, given how um, much of an example they are in fostering gender equality. And my understanding of that was that when there's pushes and there's progress being made, you know, there's this reactionary backlash, right? And so that's why the rates of domestic violence are going up because it goes to basically misogyny. And what, you know, I'm reading, I'm sifting through still Kate Mann's Down, Down Girl book uh, where she talks about the logic of misogyny. 
And there's often in the conversation around bigotry, this idea that there's an empathy gap. If only we could understand what someone else is experiencing, then we would care more. And what Kate Mann says is that using the examples of like Elliot Roger, this serial killer in um, Isla Vista, California, actually misogyny could be rooted in the presumption that we do see you as fully human. We do see the, the other, whether it's black man or female. And it's because we see you as, as human that we want to basically take down your humanity wow. you know, and subordinate you. Mm-hmm. And so that's the $10,000 question, right? How do we get people to care about other people's humanity right. and recognize going back to your idea, the indigenous ideas around all my relations, that we our future is interconnected and it and there's mutuality in our suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I mean I don't have an answer because part of what I struggle with with my podcast is a lot of the stories, especially the survivor stories, they themselves can be triggering to other survivors to listen to. And they also can be triggering to people who have those experiences who haven't named them yet who haven't come to terms to confront them yet. And so my whole goal of trying to reach people and get them to be engaged in dialogue, I come across this this barrier every day of people not wanting to because they just haven't dealt with their own shit. Right, right. right. No, it's true. It's it's one of the things I experienced when I was writing the book, it was right after, after the election and I was feeling afraid and angry and all the emotions and people in my own family voted against their own interests. And I was back in North Carolina and visiting with an elder and seeing the big Trump signs and all of that and just feeling like, God, like just yuck, you know? And I'm not a person that really harbors the an, an emotion of anger. I'm very uncomfortable being angry. I just want to resolve things. I'm a peaceful, peace-loving person. And my, um, and sitting with an elder and I asked her, I said, when is this anger going to go away? Cause honestly, for like a, a little while there, I didn't even want to be around white people, but especially white people, if I knew their politics were different from mine. And she, um, kind of brought up the indigenous thing around all my relations and said, you know, I said, Edgar, you have to love them. They're your relatives. Even if they voted for Donald Trump, you have to love them. You have to, you don't have to like them, but you have to see them as your relatives. And you have to um, ask yourself, are they in some kind of pain? Like what's driving them to behave or respond in those kind of ways? And I have never felt less indigenous in my life probably because I was like, I don't feel that (laughs) at all. And it's going to take a lot of work for me to get there. But I tried that on. I tried it on to just see people as humans and like wonder what type of pain they might be in. Right. And it kind of goes back to these restorative justice models that, that people practice sometimes in, in these trauma spaces. And Actually, you know, being in a room or being in a space with a person that harmed you and what does it take? How much healing does it take individually to be strong enough to like sit across the table from someone who has harmed you and traumatized you? But in the indigenous uh, my view, worldview of healing that the, the oppressor has to be a part of the healing process, right? And so I kind of decided during that time that I have to make space in my life to try to love those people, (laughs) right? 
and um, I have to stay off of social media a lot because it doesn't help for me to love. But I actually have gotten to a place where I've done enough work on my own that I can actually feel sorry for and empathetic towards people that I see carrying on in those kind of ways. People are so full of hate because I, I wonder how sad they must be. Like what's happened, what has happened in their lives that has pushed them to behave in that way, to want to hurt other people. And yeah, so it's hard. So for restorative justice, let me just follow up. Does the model, is there is it a prerequisite for the model for there to be accountability first? Or if the oppressor is is with the person who's been harmed, is there a benefit if there's been no accountability? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's practiced in different ways, but I would assume yes, right? I would think that there needs to be work on both sides where, where folks have to be willing to... I'm just thinking, I always take things back to like a dating relationship. That's like my ultimate example. Like any relationship with a person, if you're going to come to the table to try to resolve and begin a conversation about healing, right, then all of the other work has you know, surely has had to happen in order for both parties to feel good about moving forward, for forgiveness to happen, right? For justice to occur, I would think that people would have to be, um, take accountability and ownership for the harm they've caused. Um, yeah. Let's just take a race example. If you had a, a um, Nazi with a Jewish person or a white nationalist, KKK member with a person of color, any person of color, do you think that it's beneficial to even create that forum if the person who's the oppressor doesn't recognize that their power, efforts of power over are wrong, just ethically wrong, let alone that it's harmed anybody else? No, I don't think that's productive at all. I think that the oppressor has to come to the circle ready um, to take ownership and to change, right? This is about their healing too. I heard just last week a definition of healing justice that I really liked. Let's see if I can get it right. But but healing healing for us only comes about when we get into a space that is not actively harming us, right? So even for the person who has been oppressed or, or the victim or whatever you want to um, language you may use, to come to the table, you have to be in a place where coming to the table is not going to further harm you, right? And so there's, there's pre-work, I think, that it takes on all sides. I'm in spaces on a regular basis with other people of color who are very angry and have every right to be. Um, and even, in, you know, some of them have talked with me, like, how are you able to, like, be in those, like, white spaces? Like, screw those people, right? And I totally get it. And there's days that I feel that way. <laughs> It's not every day that I can wake up and go into a boardroom with a bunch of rich white men and have this conversation where they're going to ask me questions that trigger me, right? So there's an amount of work I have to do to go into those spaces to be prepared and strong and well enough to have those conversations that I'm not personally being traumatized. And so it is, it's um, often the, the, the healing justice process or getting into a place where we're, we're trying to move forward, especially if it involves the, the, the person that harmed us. I think we have to feel like we're, we're healing from a, something that happened in the past that is not actively hurting us, right? So I'm sure there's all types of protocols and, and social scientists have perfected this, but I think the bottom line ideology that I tap into from an indigenous perspective is like being sure that I am working, consciously working on my own healing 
And that's a, a journey that is going to be forever. And being self-aware and taking care of myself enough to know, is this a day that I can interact or is this a day that I don't need uh, to interact? And if I don't want to, I don't have to. Like I have every right to like decline to be a part of a, a, a mutual healing process with anyone. But um, I think for my, my personal goal is to be well enough that I can begin to be a healer for others. That's... Um, you know, I am a healer, and um, but I, it requires me to be in my own community and in my own private um, ceremony and practices to be in a place to help others. And it's it's a it's a process. It's it's not. Uh, <laughs> there are days that um, things happen that completely um, like re- trigger me or bring up stuff that that I have to con- constantly work on. And you know, I I am a deeply empathetic, sympathetic person, so. Um, I think I am sort of predisposed in some ways to to be able to be in those situations because I I want to get to a place of forgiveness and but I don't impose that expectation on anyone and I say that to people that I work with who have actively oppressed or are part of the philanthropic industry that unintentionally oppresses people all the time um, when they come to me and say well I tried to make a grant or I tried to build a relationship with that community and they rejected me. We may not be ready for your to be in a relationship with you. We may not want your money and we may not want to come to the table or we may not care about your healing and that's our prerogative. So that's a reality. Um, my dream is that in the U.S. we can actually get to a place where we begin to have public processes of truth and reconciliation where those of us who have been harmed, where we have been oppressed, we have public forums to tell our stories and be heard. Right, which is hard, which is triggering, which sometimes re-traumatizes. But I think that part of the healing process is to be heard and to tell those stories. Even we have to walk, walk through a lot of pain to get to the other side of healing. And for the first part of those processes, we just need to be heard. We don't need a response. <laughs> and um, that's that's my hope is that we can create healing spaces where we begin by. Uh, and I love what you're doing with this podcast because although it is hard and the stories are painful and re-traumatizing and triggering for folks, telling these stories is a is so important to liberation. I found for me, the more I tell my stories and I share intimate things that I've been through, each time I do that, I feel a little bit stronger, actually. And the truth will set us free. It really will. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Uh, it's a great segue into our concluding questions, our engendered questionnaire, which I ask every guest. First question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Wow. These are some, I thought these were going to be like, what's your favorite food kind of questions. <laughs> You know, God, what, what's at stake is all of us, right? Like, again, we are inherently connected. And my survival, my success, my thriving is inherently dependent upon uh, those around me thriving. So I see the, the healing and the liberation of women as so connected to my own struggle. And so uh, what's at stake is freedom. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? I'm so inspired by women, um, and especially women of color right now. And uh, that biggest highlight for me in the last couple of years were all of these women of color who were elected to Congress. And uh, the documentary that I recently saw, which I'm not going to remember. Bringing Down the House. Yes, (laughs) Bringing Down the House. 
Um, I, I was watching it on a plane and I was just like weeping, like out of control on the plane because I had not felt hopeful, uh, you know, at least about our political system in a long time. So I'm really enamored by, um, women leaders, women of color leaders. I know that our future is, is so dependent on these women. And I see what has happened across the South and these like Alabama that flipped and these mayoral races that women of color are on the front lines of leading. So that gives me a lot of hope and inspiration. And I know that within other industries that I don't, I'm not familiar with, I'm sure there are women of color leaders there um, who are trailblazing um, a path ahead. So that's, that's my hope. And our final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, more supportive women of color. And by support, I mean funding you know, their leadership, supporting their organizations, uh, their campaigns, um, those on the front lines and those who are pro- excuse me, providing um, the support from the side. You know, I I really felt in our conversation today uh, a spark around the lateral oppression, and um, so we need to we need to stop traumatizing each other. Those of us who come from marginalized communities, women, people of color, we need to do the work to um, to harm each other less. I encourage folks to tell their stories, even though it's painful to find spaces to be heard maybe in the you know i say start at home a lot of times that's the hardest place because violence often occurs in the home but find places to tell your story write it down blog um, begin to um, put it out there i think there's so much healing that i've discovered in in sharing and it feels re-traumatizing or triggering but for for all of those times there are so many people who have come to me that they have found the story empowering for for them so tell your stories and then the last one is to stop let's let's all stop beating ourselves up (laughs) and you know like decolonizing our hearts our minds um and all of those messages that we take in every day that tell us that we're less than that we're not good enough we all have that imposter syndrome so Let's stop beating ourselves up and like step into our power and into our leadership. Thank you very much, Edgar. It was a pleasure having you on our show. Thank you. I love the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.